It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. King's Tech Report on My Michelle Live. Well, we're getting ready to get geeky. King, are you ready to tech out as we talk about intelligent design and the design of the universe? I think we're going to go to a level of geek and mathematics that is really tough because I don't really math. Uh, King, I'm glad you're with us. Did You've heard that joke before, right? There's three kinds of people, those who math and those who don't. <laughs> what? So, yeah, um, that's and that just shows you how mathematically inclined I am. I'm Michelle Mendoza, and you're listening to My Michelle Live. And we this is part of our SciTech Talk podcast uh, where we have King come in and we talk, get a little geeky. King, I wanted to talk about some of the miracles and the craziness that we see in nature in numbers alone. I mean, the the sheer amount of mathematics in, in nature is astounding. From music, Fibonacci numbers, for example, and before we started the broadcast, we were talking about the golden ratio, and that's just the beginning. The science of numbers was not created by people, but scientists discovered the science of numbers already embedded in the universe. Numbers existed even before the advent of science. Nikola Tesla, one of the most outstanding scientists in the earlier 20th century realized that numbers carried a deeper significance than they had been thought before. Oh yeah, and honestly, all if you look at the math that goes into nature, whoever des- if it was designed, whoever designed it was an absolute madman according to our society today. I would say that because they had some kind of understanding that is so far beyond our comprehension all we can say is that they're a madman it it would seem so to us the same thing about people who said the earth was round they're crazy (laughs) they're crazy Giselle Infante joins us as well as we take on King's tech report it's the 369 principle the 369 principle was something that was brought to the attention of the world through Tesla. Let's talk about that. Quickly talk about Nikola Tesla. He's responsible for a lot of the inventions we still use to run the world today, including alternate currents, remote control, induction motors. I mean, the list goes on. He also had some ideas that didn't quite make the cut, including a super electric powered aircraft. And one thing I'm really glad didn't make it was called the death beam. Aside from being obsessed with inventing things, he was obsessed with numbers. He believed that the numbers three, six, and nine were divine numbers. going as far as to say if you only knew the magnificence of the three six and nine you have the key to the entire universe okay so to start out um you're going to there's a few things that need to lead up into the three six nine <clears throat> pardon me there's a few things that we need in order to lead up to three six nine and it's that there is a concept called vortex math basically at its very core is you take the, if you take, let's start with one, you take one times one, one plus one, sorry, it equals two. 
So then we go on to two. Two plus two equals four. Four plus four equals eight. But then we get to eight plus eight equals 16. So instead of going on to 16 plus 16, we take those, we take those two digits apart and we do one plus six. And that leads us to seven. And then we go 16 plus 16 equals 32, which will get us five. And then 32 and 32 is 64, which is six and four, which brings us to 10, which brings us back to one because one plus zero equals one. And it follows this pattern constantly from one to two to four to eight to seven down to five and then all the way back to one. There's a few numbers missing. Those would be our three, six, nine. Three plus three equals six. Six plus six equals 12, which goes back to three. 12 plus 12 is 24, which brings us back to six, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, that leaves nine out. So it, it's this interesting conundrum. And that's how we get to the three, six, nine pattern, but it even goes a step further than that. Um, a mathematician, I forget his name, unfortunately. A No, I don't forget his name. This was Tesla. I'm sorry. So if you map out all of the prime numbers, you have an origin point on a, on a graph that extends into forever. If you go one segment out and then one radian around a circle, there's your first prime number. And then two segments out, two radians around a circle and so on and so forth. You'll get this Fibonacci spiral. But Nikola Tesla noticed something else. If you look at it, it also starts creating these swirls. Guess what numbers those swirls are on? Three, six, nine? Specifically three and six. So once okay. again, we have nine left out. But Nikola Tesla noticed that there was something strange, how the 369 always kept appearing over and over. All you need to know is that when you study circles, it adds up to 360 degrees. Just think about this. No matter how many times you divide that circle, it'll always equal a three, a six, or a nine. Honestly, I don't know if this guy was OCD or if he was just, if he had just finally snapped or something. But... <laughs> or a genius. I don't know. Oh, those sound bites, thank you to your universe. It was just a man looking in nature and saying, my God. Gosh, the mathematics interwoven into the simplest form of the universe is astounding. There's something deep there. Honestly, he was so far ahead of his time in noticing th these things. Probably you know, call him some kind of prophet. Well, yeah, and that's, you say prophet, but interestingly enough, where did Fibonacci get these numbers and the way uh, things fit together. Uh, his quote is, if you only knew the magnificence, the magnificence of three, six, and nine, then you would have the key to the universe. Um, this is Tesla 
referenced where he got some of this these ideas and it it was from a biblical base and the reason i bring that up is that we forget in our age where we have tried so hard to think that reason and science answers everything which we all now know it does not but when we look into science we also see that it points to something so much deeper and you cannot get away from the intricacies of the universe so in development of science the the discovery in science and even the the poking into science often came from people who already were predisposed to believe in something deeper and that's where you it's not hard to see how the bible and science are really not at odds after all fibonacci numbers numbers that continue again and again in in nature uh or the golden ratio which uh which falls in with the Fibonacci numbers. Even the the idea of three, six, nine coming together and, and having a repetitive presence in the universe, all of these things are like, ooh, that's really cool and creepy. How, how does that happen by chance? Well, it, it doesn't. You know, it has to, it has to all fit together perfectly. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. That does bring up the question of, does it work because it was designed that way or because it evolved that way? Well, uh, I would would argue, well, I I think I can. Does my computer work because it just kind of, I happened to shake a bunch of stuff in the right direction and it just evolved that way or was it designed that way? When you get to a certain level of complication of intricacy it's really hard to make an argument oops that just happened because i'm waiting for the junk heap in my driveway to turn from a broken down car to a brand new 2021 mercedes and i don't think it's going to happen you know (laughs) what what's there is not going to suddenly develop new technology i think when we that's the the question that we're going to be delving into today is that level of design Um, And the level of intricacy in the design of the universe, what is that the sign of? And that is why this great tech report has led us to, well, some deeper questions that we're not afraid to look into today. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having me. See the boy king. Tech, 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 tech. How do you get the monkey? Michelle Live comes to you with thanks from one of our affiliates, in particular, Real Bearded Men. Check out their products, all for our bearded listeners. All my brothers with beards, raise up your beards. Let that thing grow wild from ear to ear. They say you're so cute, clean shaven. I'm so sorry, beard. This ain't no shave, no members, no shaving. Brothers with Beards. We have a special deal with Real Bearded Men. Go to our website, get a coupon code, and use the link. You'll get the best deal on products for men with beards.
welcome to Science and Technology, where with the My Michelle Live podcast, we always dig deep for what we call the God story. If there is a God, can we see evidence of him? And what would he expect of us? Well, evidence is on the table. And I wanted to talk about a book that I think marries really well with what we talk about on this podcast, because we, we really do look for evidence of God, logical, provable, testable evidence. We're not afraid to ask the tough questions, and neither is our guest, Douglas L. He's an MIT graduate, double major in physics and math, uh, has a master's degree in theoretical mathematics, and a Juris Doctorate. Uh, he is the author of a new book, Proofs of God, A Conversation Between Doubt and Reason. Doug, thanks for, is it Doug Douglas? What can we call you? Smart Doug works well. great. Right, Hi, Doug. delighted to be talking to you. I'm pretty excited about your book. Um, and here's why. We talk about this issue all the time on our program, but putting it in a right. way that just is, is, is uh, easy reading for anybody, no matter how learned you are or <laughs> how learned you're not, uh, just asking these questions, we're not able to have this conversation in the halls of public school, so we have to have it somewhere. So Ab absolutely. Isn't that really what's, what's going on out there? We're not able to have these conversations. Yeah, yeah and uh, that's a shame. Um, there's so much misinformation here and in my view modern science has absolutely uh, uh, found God uh, just too much complexity is the short story there yeah. uh, you know I'm and, and it's it's funny Michelle because I come from at this from <laughs> perhaps a different perspective than a lot of your uh, listeners I mean I was an atheist um, and a pretty nasty atheist and then I felt the presence of God when my son was being baptized and I've spent decades looking for uh, evidence. And boy, let me tell you, ask and you shall receive. Uh, <laughs> I found so, so much. And I wrote a, a book, um, a fairly technical book uh, with the help of some great scientists in 2014 called Counting to God. And everybody said, uh, nice book, Doug, but can you make it simpler? So that's what my new book, Proofs of God, tries to do. Well, then that's really helpful for anyone to just kind of peruse through. And it's it's like bullet points. You know, sometimes we're a busy society. Sometimes the bullet points really do help. But let me get to a tough question right off the top. And that's the word proof. It's hard to prove anything. Everything in science we like to think of as proofs. But science should always, in by definition, be poked and prodded. Uh, there are a lot of theories that masquerade as proofs and then we right. with these ideas of well it's settled science and settled science is the most unscientific term <laughs> ever applied to science would you say yeah settled science usually uh, means uh, here's what I think it ought to be so I don't want to listen to your uh, argument <laughs> uh, <laughs> do we do that with God can we do that with God as yeah, well? Well, we do. Yeah, and of all, a lot of people, a lot of people try. You know, I, so um, I've spent a lot of time in mathematics and uh, a lot of wasted years, so that was interesting. But uh, I mean, the proof 
you actually, in a technical sense, you can't prove anything. You have to make certain assumptions, okay? Um, call them your axioms, your postulates, your, your foundational starting points. And so I start with the two starting points that the, the scientific method uses, which is one, um, uh, that we live in, a, you know, that life is real. We're not uh, beings in some sort of computer simulation. And two, we can use our senses to learn about the world. Uh, you know, without those two assumptions, all of science falls and, and uh, nothing stands up. So, uh, you know, like, this is a real world and we can use our senses to learn about it. And then I add just one more, uh, one more assumption, which is when there's only in all history and all of science, only one explanation for something, then that explanation is true. And what we have, what science has found. And I mean, there's just so much here. Maybe we can get a chance to talk about it is that the complexity of life and actually the complexity of the design of the universe it's just unbelievable uh, beyond our truly our ability to understand. And it's so well designed. And there's only one explanation in all of history and all of science for this kind of complexity and all of this uh, design is that there's some sort of intelligent mind beyond, behind it. Um, maybe that sounds a little too technical, but basically I think when you put all that together, uh, modern science proves the existence of God. It, it certainly proves the existence of something. Uh, you just cannot look at the computer sitting on my desk and the broadcast equipment needed for you and I to have this conversation and say, right. oops, that just happened. You know, you, you wouldn't even fathom that idea. You would look and say, oh, okay, that's uh, Asus and you know, that's Microsoft. We know that there is some kind of intellect behind the programs that make this program possible. Even if I might not be considered a great intellect, at least you could look behind what, what makes it happen. So yeah. when we look at the universe at this point, at this, can I say, advanced stage of human existence, it would be absolutely illogical to look at what's placed out there and not see some kind of intellect behind it. I mean, you would have to have blinders on. And I'm not saying that you have to believe in God the way I believe in God at this point, you know, just yeah. for the sake of this conversation. But you cannot get away from saying, wow, okay, there's something intelligent behind this. Right. I mean, um, there's somewhere between 100 to 200 uh, constants and, uh, and even the laws of physics. Uh, and all top scientists really know this uh, are set precisely. It's like the analogy is like walking into a control room for the universe and finding uh, 100 or more knobs set very exactly just so life can exist. And, and that's on the, uh, on the physics side, on the biology side. Uh, there's a, uh, a new uh, technical article saying out that the coming, that, excuse me, that's been published, that the uh, biology fine-tuning is much more advanced than the physical, than the physics of fine-tuning. I mean, consider the, the human brain, Michelle. I mean, you know, it's something, uh, nobody knows how it works. I mean, you know, that's really amazing, yet we think, oh, it just sort of evolved. I mean, it's really, when you actually sit back and think about that, uh, 
the human brain is by far, the, in my view, the most advanced technology in the universe. I mean, we all have the information, an information capacity theoretically on the same uh, level as the entire uh, Internet. And we can control 600 or more muscles. Uh, you know, we can play back memories uh, and on and on and on. Nobody knows what consciousness is. Um, you have technology beyond our ability to even explain how it works. When you came to some of these conclusions, when you did some of this research, you did come from a long, long, uh, long time training of thinking as an atheist or as an agnostic. And I so respect that because um, in that you do come with this idea of, okay, show me, prove it. <laughs> right. Instead of, I believe it, and so I'm going to try to get evidence to back up what I believe. So I really do appreciate that. And I love that about uh, some of my atheist and agnostic friends, is that when you're looking at facts, you can look at it. Although, doesn't it work in that way, too, though, that we like to prove what uh, sometimes our faith in nothing is a faith as well. And I think in some cases, based on what you're saying, it takes a lot more faith to not believe in God or, or an intelligence out there than, than to look at what the logical conclusion is. Yeah, I think if you really look at the facts, and I lay a lot of them out, very simple facts, uh, proven um, scientific facts in my book, you just can't avoid the conclusion that God exists. I mean, I styled the book as a fairly simple conversation with a little sassy talk, and I hired a cartoonist. Uh, so I, I think it's accessible to pretty much everybody. And it's sort of a conversation. I call it doubt and reason. It's a conversation, in effect, um, that I modeled after conversations I've had with people. And it's sort of a conversation between my college self and my present self. You know, if I could go back now, and talk to that atheist. Here's here's how I'd I'd approach it. Yeah, and it literally is a conversation. Reason is having a conversation with doubt. It is in that it makes it uh, relatable and an easy read, and that's why uh, one of the reasons I really wanted to have uh, Douglas L on the program today because this this book is something in. Uh, Gosh, the void of education that we're having right now because of lockdowns and COVID restrictions. Your kids yeah. uh, are kind of hanging in the balance. I cannot more highly recommend one book that your kids can relate to, an easy read for them. It grabs every learning style. That's that's kind of the the beauty of this, even with the cartoonist, uh, you know, you're grabbing learning styles for the visual learner, for uh, the the person who's a little bit more conversational. So this book, Proofs of God, A Conversation Between Doubt and Reason, is an ideal book during this time for your kids, for your teenagers, and for you and I. And some of the most powerful arguments for uh, Proofs of God the evidence supporting a, a an intelligence design are what to let's just take uh some facts um let's look uh, at the monarch butterfly okay beautiful butterflies they uh science has found that they uh, uh they come from some tree and typically in northern mexico they migrate north uh 
probably not to Seattle, but to the central U.S. and even up to Canada and come back again. Um, they navigate by the Earth's magnetic field. They can measure, and these are butterflies, okay? <laughs> they can measure both the direction of the field and the strength of the field, uh, which is technology that also birds have and a lot of fish, like that's how salmon get back to those streams. Um, and monarch butterflies have a four-generation migratory pattern. And what I'm saying is they return to the tree where their great-grandfathers were born. Okay, so um, there, that's one system that cannot be explained by some sort of Darwinian. It just gradually gets better. Um, here's another one that plants uh, communicate. These are proven scientific facts. I'm, I didn't make this stuff up, Michelle. Plants warn each other. Uh, some plants warn other plants when uh, insects are eating them so the other plants can produce uh, chemicals to repel the insects. That couldn't have evolved. Um, the plant being eaten gets no advantage, but and the, the 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 complexities of any system of communication are way beyond the the laws of chance. The truth is, when when life is as complicated as we find we found out that it is, it just can't be explained by keeping the best mistakes. I mean, and I, and I think all the top scientists really know that Darwin was wrong. They just won't. Most of them won't admit it publicly. Mm. Yeah, and we are seeing that, uh, as many scientists on this program have said, that the only place that you really see a prevailing atheistic mindset is in philosophy. You really aren't seeing it as heavily as you would think in biology. And if there is hard questions uh, that might go against the existence of God that still prevail, well, you know, I think I don't see it in science, actually. Uh, to me, it's a slam dunk case in science. Uh, other people won't look at the evidence. Um, I've got a cartoon about that in my book, too. But, uh, you, you know, I think a lot of the people, uh, life is hard. Uh, and so people ask, well, if there's a God, why is life hard? Uh, that's not a scientific question. The Bible answers that right in the first uh, few chapters with, uh, you know, the Genesis fall and uh, our refusal to accept God. But uh, it's not, prim- I think for most people, getting to God is, uh, it's it's not a scientific issue and it shouldn't be. It's just I came here by a strange route and I want, I'm looking to help people get to first base, if that makes any sense, you know, to, to eliminate... Yes eliminate this misconception that is so prevalent in our society that uh, there's some that science has disproved God. I mean, I, it actually is to me again, is completely the opposite. And, and I'm just trying to reach people, uh, you know, to, uh, you don't have to worry about that. I mean, I think scientists, the science again, proves there is a God, there's something. Um, it's, it's just getting the first base and realize that things are designed that we're not here by chance. Okay, so me being a sports girl, let's uh, let's steal the second and try to get our guy all the way home and figure out this whole God story. If we can look at science, and science overwhelmingly shows that there is intelligence behind very, very complex design. Okay, we've got that. But as far as the God thing goes, how do we get from this is pretty intelligent to the spe- not only 
that okay, it's God, we can label it as God, but also who that God is, because I honestly think, Doug, that within nature itself, within creation, we see fingerprints of God. We see uh, hints to the character of this designer by the beauty yeah. of nature, which is not necessary, the diversity of what we see on, in our planet, which is astounding, how uh, the specifics of our emotions and so much. We see some fingerprints that can take us from, okay, science shows that there's some kind of intellect to proof of God. Yes. Yes, well, first of all, I mean, when you realize that God designed all the life on the planet, and that's an inescapable conclusion, I think, when you put my book down, uh, you're overwhelmed, uh, you know, and almost speechless by the uh, by that. I think to, to get uh, a home run here, to continue the analogy, uh, I'm a Christian. I think you have to read the Bible. Um, I think the Bible is historical fact, and uh, you know you have to pray, and you—it's a process that uh, we all have to go through. Uh, I just want people to be open to it. I love that answer. I think it's very honest. So, as we look at the evidence, and we're faced with the evidence, any student of science knows when you're faced with evidence you have to draw some kind of conclusion if you come to the conclusion that there's something out there maybe it's not hurtful to say okay if it really is god god will you show me and you think he will i ask and you shall receive it happened to me i prayed to try to understand this issue of science and religion and I can't tell you, Michelle, how many times uh, you know I've opened up a uh, a magazine or something and said, "Wow, I mean, look at this fact. Look at that fact." It, uh, and I think if everybody searches in their own life, uh, it'll come to them. Since the time that you've had this kind of great awakening, how has it changed your life? Oh, it's uh, you know, I mean. Faith is really more, it's, it's not just sort of an intellectual game, it's more trusting God. Um, and I've learned to trust God. Uh, I tithe and more, and so now I don't have any financial issues because I gave that to God. Uh, I'm more at peace internally. Uh, that may sound sort of fuzzy, so, but that's, you know, you're asking for my personal, what's, how it's affected me. And, uh, uh, it's just made my life so much too, more though. enjoyable. Yeah. I think there's science to that too, because we think of a science as being just this very cold, factual thing. But it's so much more, in, in my opinion, the the byproduct of of some of what we see out there. Uh, if there is a creation and if there is a God, then he is much more than just the sole cold scientific fact of, okay, there is intelligent design. We're looking at something much more maybe fuzzy because why, again, does, does a landscape, I, I live in Seattle and in the great Northwest, you can see these gorgeous mountains and lush green trees why does it right. have to be so beautiful and pleasing <laughs> why does chocolate have to taste so good
good. Food does not need to have taste. I mean, it could just be acceptable or unacceptable. It doesn't have to have this beautiful diversity. Why do we have love? Love is a scientific fact as well. I think it's okay to look at some of the fuzziness, (laughs) the the warm fuzzies of the byproduct of, of creation and say, wow, there is so much more. Otherwise, we really have a problem of appreciating life, appreciating human life, appreciating and understanding others, because why would we? We're just a bunch of cold, hard, uh, evolved from goo facts, and there's nothing personal. But if you look at it from your point of view, that there really is proofs of God, then that has a profound effect on every part of life. And I'll give you, my new friend, the final word. Well, I, I thank you for that. It's uh, it's so true. Um, if you don't have God, in my view, you have nothing. Because, as you say, you think you're uh, you're meaningless. The world is meaningless, uh, and it's there's no morality without God. I mean, to me, God is everything. And if my book can help get a few people, get them to first base on this and start their own process, then. That's why I wrote it. Well, Doug, I think that's pretty humble because I think he got a home run here. So proofs <laughs> of God, a conversation between doubt and reason. It's actually a lot of fun to read, which is fabulous, uh, especially if you're not as geeky as me. And yeah, I'll pick up something really deep science. But for some people, you can tune out pretty quickly. You will not be tuning out of this book, nor will your teens. So you may want to pick this up and you can get the link everywhere you're listening to me now. Douglas L. is the author and my new buddy and a great interview. Thanks for being with us today, Doug. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I want to share with you something that's changed my life. Uh, It's a product, and I used to take it when they paid me to talk about it at the radio station. And when I left my job, I stopped taking the product, right? And everything went south. It's Calitrin. It is a collagen supplement and the best out there. A lot of people take it for weight loss. I mean, people are losing anywhere from 10 to a couple hundred pounds. That's great. But for me, what it did is it helped me sleep. It helped me focus. My hair, skin, and nails were looking spectacular. It is amazing for those who may have arthritis, achy joints, that kind of thing. But man, it really is a fountain of youth in a bottle and I could feel its effects when I stopped taking it. So I contacted them and said, hey, do you want to be an affiliate? You know, you don't, you have to sponsor my show. Just give me an opportunity to get the product at a special deal and to share that with my listeners. And that's what we're doing. So go to mymichellelive.com, click on the link and learn more about Calitrin, my favorite product. We are not afraid to ask some of those really tough questions. Today, I'm asking the question, how intelligent is design after all? I'm willing to ask the really hard questions of intelligent design. I mean, if we really want to walk by faith, what if that faith is on 
I don't know, not so solid ground? What if what you believe ugh, really doesn't have a scientific base? Then it's just really blind faith. And it may not be real. So never be afraid to question what you think and question those beliefs. And we're going to do it with a man who has, he has a way of uh, gaining a lot of people's ire. But I have to say, one of the most amazing people to talk to. He's a biochemist, author, a professor of biochemistry, and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. And oh, oh, by the way, Wikipedia also adds this. He's an advocate for the pseudoscience principle of intelligent design. I welcome to our program, Michael Behe. Michael, thanks for joining us. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be with you again. <laughs> yeah, you you seem to uh, elicit a lot of people's anger. And, and here's something I just want to ask right off the top. Uh, you get a lot of hard questions, and that's fine. Your latest book answers those. Uh, you're not afraid of those hard questions, but for some reason you draw people's ire. And I was thinking about this before I, I invited you on. I just wanted to point out there is a little bit of a, a, as people who are maybe more atheistic, Darwinian, evolutionists, a lot of them are great people and friends of mine. But sometimes there is a creepy factor to their stalking of those Christians. I mean, look, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, but I don't have websites, books, or nor am I angry about the tooth fairy. Michael, I am not stalking kids with loose teeth and saying, okay, what, what's going to happen when that falls out and, and looking under the pillows to see if their parents left a quarter. So what is it that, that bugs people about you? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I think my big my big uh, offense was to say that nature you you can look at nature and and tell that it was designed that it's a rational and empirical decision. It's not not some uh, not some hazy religious concept. You can uh, you can uh, know that nature is designed and particularly uh, life and the basis of life, molecular basis of life, uh, simply by looking at how it's put together, just like you would uh, look at, say, a lawnmower and say, hey, that was not an accident because I can see how all of the parts are fit together and fit to each other to accomplish some purpose. Same thing with the foundation of life. Back in Darwin's day, um, he didn't know what the foundation of life was like. Nobody knew back then. Uh, they thought that cells were like little pieces of jello. Uh, they called it protoplasm. And they didn't know that there were such things as molecules. People guessed that there might be such things, but they, they didn't know for sure. So we have made astounding progress since Darwin's day. But for some reason, biologists still feel stuck explaining things in that 19th century uh, concept. But uh, science has discovered that rather than a piece of jello, the cell, the very foundation of life, is built on machines, real machines made out of molecules. There are uh, trucks, little molecular trucks and buses that kind of ferry uh, 
passengers and cargo from one side of the cell to the other into the many different compartments of the cell. And there are outboard motors uh, that uh, can help a cell to swim. And there are chemical factories and, and there is uh, computer processing in the cell. Uh, Bill Gates has called DNA the most sophisticated uh, computer program uh, that he knows of. Uh, so uh, we, when we see a computer program or we see a truck or we see an outboard motor, we don't wonder whether they're products of uh, chance and, and time. We know that they were designed, and it's a rational uh, deduction because we see how all of the parts fit together to to do the job. So same thing with the cell. So as we look at that, it would be illogical and ridiculous to shut out any argument that says, wow, look at this design, what designed it? And that's really the basis of intelligent design. You look at the design of nature and say, wow, there looks to be some kind of intelligence behind it. You're basically looking at evidence. Now, what you do with the evidence, it leads to your faith. And that's something I just wanted to get out of the way at the beginning. You know, there are a lot of people that can look at the world around and say, what does the evidence say? I'm looking at an outboard motor. Evidence would say that something, someone created it. If it says Evinrude on it, that might even give us some specifics. I don't know. You know, don't, I'm not a genius or anything, and I don't have a scientific degree, but I'm just saying. But what we do with that, when you draw a conclusion saying, uh, I believe that the evidence points to, uh, for example, a, a biblical worldview, but there are other folks who may have no faith, may have no religious affiliation. It's just a matter of looking at the evidence. What you do with the evidence is kind of, well, if I might say, between you and God. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the really swell things about intelligent design is that it's it's pretty much independent of your uh, philosophical or theological background that you know if you came across say an outboard motor if you uh, I, I when I give talks I like to show this wonderful far side cartoon I love far side and it shows <laughs> gives you shows a little of, insight into Michael's sense of humor yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> And, and this shows a, uh, a bunch of guys walking along a, a jungle path, and the lead one has been strung up by this vine, and there are these uh, bamboo shoots that have come along and skewered him. And everybody can tell it was designed because you see all the parts fitting together. And as a matter of fact, the humor of the cartoon depends on the uh, viewer getting the uh, design behind the trap. So we... And, you know, and there's no philosophical, no theological um, implications to that. Uh, so the the point is that when we see fantastically uh, sophisticated machinery, uh, then we always conclude design, and we conclude it based on our uh, just on our experience and our our understanding of how minds work. Since we have minds ourselves. Uh, we can uh, understand how uh, minds work. And uh, again, the Darwin's theory was probably okay back in the day when he first proposed it, 
because not so much was known about life. But the more science has progressed, then the more and more and more confident we can be because we now see the, the inner workings and the mechanisms and the sophistication of life, the more uh, confident we can be of purposeful design. So before we ask some of the hard questions, and that's some of what you take on in your book, uh, do some of the roots of our cancel culture, our shut the idea of shutting down voices instead of debating them. I wonder if that mindset, ha- in many cases, has its roots from the halls of science. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not much of a sociologist or anything like that. But I know that people in general, uh, especially when they're in charge, when they occupy the high ground of. Uh, the culture, they like to keep control. And, uh, you know, they like to squelch anything that that seems to point out that they don't know what they're talking about. And uh, whenever somebody's in a position of power, then the the temptation is to try to shut down debate on something that might embarrass you. And I think that's a large part of what's going on in science here, that is that... Everybody agrees in the scientific community that Darwin's theory is correct. And if you look at the evidence, it's pretty much that agreement that's the only thing that is holding up Darwin's theory. And if, if, <laughs> if yeah. people broke out of the pack and said, no, wait, show me some evidence that it works, then, then it would collapse in a heap. So, that's uh, human nature, he, isn't it? I mean, it really yeah, is human it, nature. We've seen this yeah. again and again and again uh, when, when we have an ensteeped mindset, we get uncomfortable with any challenges. It's the brave mm-hmm. people that say, well, what if, what if? And I guess my concern yeah. is, is is we're in a, a world that puts so much emphasis on science when science uh-huh. is uh, one of those places that we shut out voices. I think it has a trickle down effect. I wanted to talk about your book, A Mousetrap for Darwin. Uh, where you answer some of your critics, but right off the bat, I have to ask this question. On the cover is a bacterial flagellum motor. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is that on there? What's, what's that about? That's not a well, mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, but that's the kind of metaphorical mousetrap for Darwin. It's, a, yes. it's an example of the sophisticated machinery that's been discovered at the molecular foundation of life. It, it quite literally is an outboard motor that some bacteria use to swim, and it's got all sorts of parts that regular uh, outboard motors would have. It's, it's got a propeller and it's got a motor and a drive shaft and, and you know, dozens of different uh, parts. And the nice thing is that when you look at it, you look at it, you can see that it is a, you know, a, a machine. <laughs> it, it's not like, it's, it's not like a machine. It, it is a real machine. And, and I like to use that image because it's, uh, the mo- I think is most striking visual example of uh, the argument for intelligent design. Yeah, I would really encourage you as you're listening, uh, get if, if you're going to get the book, get the book. That's great. But even if you're not, 
Oh my goodness, you really, really have to click on the link to see the cover of the book and look at this crazy picture. It really does look like uh, some kind of piece of machinery. And when you realize that it's biological, uh, it's really hard to say, yeah, that, oops, that just happened from goo to you. It's pretty astounding. So for if for no other reason, just click on the link just so you can see yeah. this picture. And that's a kind of the summary of the whole argument right there, <laughs> that uh, we say that was designed and, and Darwinists say, no, 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 we can, you know, our theory can account for that. And yes, you say, okay, well, how that's does great. There, yeah, how does show me. Theory account for, yeah, how does it account for that? <laughs> well, it accounts for it by waving their hands quite a lot and changing the subject. <laughs> You know, I first wrote about that uh, 25 years ago in a book called Darwin's Black Box, The Flagellum. And I said at that time, I I looked through the scientific literature and there had been no attempts even to uh, explain how uh, Darwinian processes could produce something like that. And 25 years later, there are still zero attempts at explaining that thing. So I, I think that's a pretty strong indication that that Darwin's theory is just the wrong lens through which to to view life. And even if if it were not, we should never be afraid to challenge our ideas or our theories. That's how we grow in knowledge. That's what science really is about. Some of the things that you take on in your book of have to do with things that we have discovered in the last uh, hundreds some years that um, Darwinian evolution is having a hard time accounting for. So it's almost like, don't look at the the guy behind the curtain. Don't look at this. Just pay attention to this thing that we're saying. And one of those things uh, you, you address in a chapter in your book on the irreducibility of blood clotting cast of the Mm -hmm. blood clotting Cascade. Cascade. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that's right. Uh, it's an example of something that that doesn't impress you very much when you look at it from our everyday level. You know, guy goes in to shave in the morning, you, you nick your neck, and a little bit of blood trickles out, and it slows down and stops and heals over. You know, what's the big deal? But it turns out that the process that makes blood clot at the right time and the right place is enormously uh, intricate and complex with dozens of different parts. And if any of the parts are missing, you either you know bleed to death or your blood uh, clots all at once uh, when it's not supposed to, and then you kind of get frozen in place. And uh, either way, it's, it's a big problem. So uh, it turns out that it's not just the the, the slowing down and the stopping of the blood, it's, you know, um, timing it or having a clot in the right time and the right place, because if it clots in the wrong time, you might have, or wrong place, you might have a heart attack or a stroke or, or something like that. Uh, so even something is that uh, on the surface looks as simple as blood clotting, turns out to be uh, enormously complex. And that's just a, an example of many, many different things uh, in life. And that's something that we can consider 
irreducible. In other words, uh, you can't just trial and error that because you would bleed to death in the process. I mean, is that a simple way of saying it? <laughs> that's, that's right. It, it's, it's called a cascade because one factor, you know, there's uh, this component that forms the clot. But if it was the only one that was there, you know, all your blood would be clotted, and that would not be good. So there's another component which... Uh, which uh, acts on a precursor to that protein that forms the clot. But if that was present and in the active form, it would uh, activate all of the clot material and you'd be in the same bad shape as before. So there's all this convoluted control system. And again, if one of the, uh, one of the uh, factors that are necessary is, is missing, it either sets off the whole thing at once or it doesn't get set off even when it's supposed to be. So, yeah, it's, it's, got, uh, it's irreducible in the sense that you can't take a factor away and, and still have it work. Okay, so talking about taking factors away, uh, somewhere along the line, if we crawled out of the ooze, uh, we would have had to have, you know, our gills would have had to have fallen off and as would our, our you know, our webbed feet and all of all of that. And so we, we think of um, some of the throwaway functions. Uh, in the last, oh gosh, years of science, we've seen that things like when I was a kid, Michael, everyone was getting their tonsils out because they were just this useless thing left over from evolution, right? And you would get tonsillitis. So to prevent that, everyone got their tonsils out. My mom would not let me get my tonsils out. She said, you know, God put them there for a reason. We're going to leave them in. And I hated that. Everyone got to stay home from school and eat freaking ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Are you kidding me? Every kid wanted their tonsils out. And then turns out as an adult, we find out tonsils really do have a purpose. Ouch! And so that leads me to something that um, there has to be a net benefit for these throwaway functions. Um, Otherwise, you know, we have to get rid of them, but there has to be a benefit in getting rid of them. And we're, we don't see that in Darwinian evolution. Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're exactly right. Well, I'm one of the guys who did, in fact, have my tonsils out when I was uh, in first grade, ah. I think. And, <laughs> and I, I got ice what cream, but uh, <laughs> I tell you what, I'd trade the ice cream and keep my tonsils. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that Darwinists do is when they see uh, an organ or some feature that they don't know what the heck it does, they say, oh, it's just some useless leftover because we know. Uh, uh, we know evolution doesn't care about perfection or anything. And that's what is classically called an argument from ignorance. And that is that I don't know what this does, therefore it doesn't do anything. And that, that argument has a very, very bad track record in oh biology. In life. You know, that's uh, as bad as, as uh, co- coming to the idea that the sun rises in the sky because, you know, it's some god staring down at us. or so it's, it's along the lines of superstition. <laughs> we think we're so advanced, and yet we're thinking that way? That's creepy to me. Me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, everybody's, even scientists are people too. So uh, we all make the same mistakes of wishful thinking and, and uh, you know, prejudice for our own 
conclusions and so on. But yeah, it, it, that's still active. Uh, there's something called junk DNA. Uh, yeah. A couple decades ago, somebody said, well, you know, there's all this DNA and a large chunk of it, we don't know what it does in, in the human genome. So therefore, it probably does nothing and therefore it's junk. And uh, that that idea got a lot of play for a while until it was uh, all sorts of functions, all sorts of uh, useful uh, things were discovered within what was thought to be junk. And so that concept is pretty much gone now, but uh, you can bet bet your bottom dollar that next thing you know somebody focuses on that nobody knows what it does uh, that uh, darwin darwinists will say that it's it's probably just uh useless junk okay so up till now i've thrown you some softballs which was kind of nice we're kind of getting warmed up but um i honestly ideas and Theories really mean nothing unless we're willing to take on the hard questions. So I wanted to ask you what some of the most challenging questions that you've been posed. And, I, and you've had a lot. You've had, I mean, you could just Google Michael Behe and you'll see that, you know, people have, well, he says this and there's, so I want to know what you, what you had to really dig deep and say, hmm, you know what, that is kind of a conundrum. Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, I really, you know, hate to <laughs> say this, and I, I really wish I, I could, you know, agree, but I haven't run across any anything that has made me uh, think twice about my conclusion. I think that the conclusion of design, when you see and understand the uh, foundation of life, is is just one big, you know, duh. Uh, it's, it's so easy to see. But I it's have had enough. That's hard to say, but you know what? I have to agree with you. Now, I'm not a scientist, but uh-huh. where some of the hard, the quote, hard questions of faith come into consideration, I look at it and go, that's not so tough. Or uh, how, in my worldview, my conclusion when I look at scientific evidence is that it adheres to a biblical worldview. That's my conclusion based on the evidence. And I have not seen, though, people say there's contradictions and there's this. I haven't run up against anything where I, and I don't, I don't have a problem with saying, oh, yeah, that's tough. I don't know. And the body of evidence would still lead me to conclude, but I haven't come to that either maybe maybe we just need people to ask harder questions but (laughs) that's where i'm at as well but there's but i would like for you to share with us some of the questions that people have posed that they really think they've given you an uh uh-huh gotcha yeah well uh let's see most most of the responses to uh intelligent design are things like um well, give us another 20 years and we'll figure out how evolution uh, made the bacterial flagellum or something. Okay, fine. Well, like I, That's fine. Go ahead. We can take 20 yeah. years to do that. But in the meantime, yeah. why not at least be looking into what this intelligent design might be? And and who, if we can find fingerprints of the designer like Evan Rude on the outboard motor? <sighs> Exactly, and and the ironic thing is that it's it's been twenty five years since I first wrote about the flagellum, and there's still no progress on the Darwinian front, and and um, there's uh, other 
Another objection is that, well, yeah, you can't make these irreducibly complex systems directly. Say you couldn't build an outboard motor or even a mousetrap piece by piece and have it work and each piece improve things. But maybe uh, maybe it wasn't a mousetrap all the time. Maybe it was a doorstop and then changed into a, a key holder and, and uh, you know, changed back and forth and finally ended up as, say, a mousetrap. And, you know, you say, well, uh, you know, show me that in a little bit more detail. You know, how, how could it do that? And uh, um, without exception, it, it's just a, an, a just-so story where they can't show that there are intermediates, whether or not there were on the direct route to whatever system you're thinking about, or whether there indirect and uh so that that was a, that's another favorite and one more is simply to misrepresent what i say to um, to misrepresent what i mean by irreducible complexity to um to not read my rebuttals and then pretend that i had not answered or that i was so uh, taken with the criticism that I, you know, uh, that I uh, retired into a, a monastery and, you know, never, <laughs> never came out again. But uh, that's what this new book is supposed to counter, at least. And that is to gather together all of my responses to criticisms over decades, uh, just so uh, people can't ignore them anymore. And, and next time some criticism comes up by it, least we'll be able to point to the exact place easily accessible where folks can can see my responses for themselves. To me, Michael, that is one of the most powerful reasons to pick up this book. Um, for those who are who are not afraid to challenge their own theories, uh, if you think you're right, then don't be afraid of the challenge because the truth will set you free, my friend. For those who may be of the ID mindset, uh, and we're faced with a daily onslaught of people saying, well, you're crazy, and you're anti-science, and by the way, didn't I see you entering a church? Ooh, see? <laughs> see? And and so having uh, someone who, this is part of your life's work, answering those those critics, this gives you some insight on how you might be able to do that as well. Be informed. So it, some great reasons to pick up the book. Do you have time for just a couple other quick questions that I just yeah, find sure. really interesting? One of, the, one of the big conversations through science right now is the Wolfram uh, idea. It's a, it's a theory of everything. It's uh, Wolfram Physics project. It's sure. uh, something that people have talked about, and you actually address it in your book. Yeah, that's right. Stephen Wolfram, he's, uh, he was this child genius, and he grew up to be a, an adult genius. <laughs> Not everybody does. <laughs> and and he, he, he's rich, and he, he wrote a program called Mathematica, which engineers and scientists use to do higher math. And he uh, is... Uh, uh, espouses a theory that, well, there's all sorts of complexity in the world, and if 
you um, if uh, the complex systems kind of bounce around in the right way, then they can form uh, interesting patterns. Uh, for example, he um, has a, a number of uh, little programs where uh, the program is told to color in a square in this kind of a crossword puzzle grid and uh, then follow some rules about whether to color in another square. And with the right rules, you know, you can get these neat patterns unfolding. You can get triangles or you could get things that look like birds or uh, things that seem to be moving in the pattern and, and so on. And it's all very interesting. And there are other folks who, uh, who advocate uh, sort of kind of similar things. But when you try to say, what, what does this have to do with biology? Uh, it, it gets real, real uh, hazy, real, real fast. So it's, it's, these are nice. He's a mathematician, and, and uh, for all I know, it might be a lot of uh, very interesting mathematics, but he, nobody has made a connection to biology. And if you look at evolution, biological evolution experiments, uh, and, or uh, patterns in uh, various data from life, you don't see anything like what these folks are, are talking about. So again, uh, Stephen Wolfram and uh, other folks, uh, you know, they might have, uh, have an interesting com concept in computer science or mathematics, but it doesn't seem to relate at all to evolution or, or life. Well, as we look at random, random in, in nature really turns out to not be random. Haven't we figured that out in recent scientific discovery? Well, I, I guess it depends on on how you define random, which is which is real tough. <laughs> uh, computer folks and physicists and stuff uh, uh, depend on random uh, <laughs> random uh, events in in some theories. But yeah, it, you can never actually prove that something is is random. You can just kind of test to see if it it looks to be random, as far as we know. Um, uh, what I was going to say that that in evolution, of course, in Darwin's theory, it depends heavily on random mutation and then natural selection. But again, you know, who can tell if if something is random unless you um, unless you have some independent knowledge, some complex pattern that you don't know about could underlie a lot of, of things that are, are going on. So essentially, people assume that uh, mutation is random, but, uh, but it might not be. Um, but and in order to try to look at something random, you need complex, I mean, even Wolfram has complex mathematics in order to come up with these theories, and you're going, well, okay, if there is even math, then there is order, <laughs> even to yeah. your random theories. So that's where it's hard for yeah. me to wrap my, my head around. Are there any powerful um, arguments for Darwinian evolution that are still out there? 
no. <laughs> uh, but here are the ones that people usually point to. Many people confuse evidence for what I would call mere evolution yes. uh, with Darwinism. And by mere, to play on mere Christianity, of course, uh, by C.S. Lewis, he said he wrote a book about, you know, the the uh, many things that different Christian churches have in common. Well, mere evolution would be the idea of common descent. That is, you know, that organisms alive today descended somehow from organisms in the misty past, but it doesn't say how such fantastic changes could have occurred. Uh, but Darwin's theory, Darwin, he, he, his claim to fame wasn't, evolution, per se, wasn't mere evolution. Uh, a number of um, naturalists had proposed it before him. His claim to fame was the proposal that random variations, when it's filtered by natural selection, could drive and build all of the complex and elegant features that we see uh, in life today. And that is the critical question, both scientific and, and I think, philosophical question. Uh, it's not common sense because common sense says, well, you had an organism in the past that had these features, and now we have a descendant, and it has some fe the same features and some different ones. But it doesn't say where the, the ancestor came from. It doesn't say how the, the modern form came to differ. It just says that it was there, and hey, look, it's still here. Uh, so that's, that's kind of trivial. But Darwin's uh, theory says that, hey, we, we got that covered. We can tell you where the new features came from. But it turns out they can't. Uh, they just assume it. Uh, after Darwin's idea came along and was accepted, people assumed that it was responsible. And it turns out that's that, lazy science. That's lazy well, science right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, not not only it, it, yeah it was was lazy, but it's also true that we didn't have the tools to really test his theory until recently, because now we know that these random variations that Darwin talked about are actually due to mutations, which are changes in molecules, and he knew nothing about molecules. And they're actually changes in DNA, in the sequence of uh, nucleotides in DNA. So in order to see what Darwin's mechanism can do, you have to be able to find those changes at the molecular level in large numbers of organisms for large numbers of generations. <laughs> and it turns out that it's only been the past 10, 20 years that to be able to uh, track those down. And it turns out, as I, I've written in my uh, book before this, One Carwin Devolves, that um, that mutations do occur, and sometimes they help, and natural selection uh, allows them to increase in the population. But uh, for the very large part, they're generally mutations that break or damage genes that were already there. They're essentially throwing genetic information overboard for short-term gain. So Darwin's theory has actually been um, 
the evidence has uh, has come strongly against it now that we can actually test it at the molecular level. <sighs> All of this has been so interesting, and uh, we've even taken more time than I than I promised, and I apologize for that. Uh, but I uh, mean, this is something that you could you can talk about all day. There are so many areas uh, you could you could dissect our human bodies from our fingernails, our eyeballs, blood clotting uh, to <clears throat> my response to COVID. Right? All of yeah. these things are so amazing, and just taking a, a walk through nature the the beauty the diversity it's astounding and so i wanted to end our interview all, kind of where we began with uh your stalkers <laughs> i call them <laughs> because you really do have folks who are if if what you believe is so outlandish then leave it alone it should disprove itself but for some mm-hmm. reason it truly bothers people and yeah. I don't know if that's just because of the the science that they feel uncomfortable with as you mentioned that you know you get your mindset on something and someone challenges mm-hmm. you it's human nature to have your uh, like a rooster have your hackles up or if it's because maybe you draw a conclusion in your personal life as to what all of this means I'd like your well thoughts. yeah that that that's Certainly true. I mean, nobody would care about bacterial flagella or blood clotting uh, if the if it didn't point to higher conclusions. And a lot of folks really think that you know are very comfortable with their worldview of uh, nature being self-sufficient. And if one points out that well, that doesn't seem to be the correct interpretation these days they can get really, really defensive, and more than defensive, then they can get offensive, too. Uh, and, uh, yeah, nobody would, would care, uh, you know, about, nobody cares about 99% of scientific results uh, unless they, you know, uh, result in a, a new iPhone or something. Uh, they only care about the argument for intelligent design. They only care about... the. Uh, the irreducibility of biochemical systems because it points to a designer. And that can have very profound implications for how we conduct our our lives. Because you have to look at the evidence, and in some way you do have to draw a conclusion. I mean, that's the logical outpouring. So Mm -hmm. in that, that's where science is important. And it's important if you're on the other side of ID, we can, if you believe in in creationism, if you believe in intelligent design, we can get just as offensive and offended at at a challenge too. That's part of human nature. So maybe the challenge for our society, in my opinion, Michael, in this cancel culture world we live in is to be willing to listen whatever the ideas are talk it out debate it out and shake hands at the end of the day but it's important to come to your own conclusion based on the evidence what do you say and you know we always get to the god story on this program michael oh it's so good to talk with you i always love our conversations and can i just give you a little bit of praise Uh, one thing that you do that you're so gifted at is taking ideas in science and making them palatable for uh, 
a fast food generation. <laughs> you, you give us, a, you give us, a, you know, it's Chateaubriand in a way that we can all you know, pronounce. And I really appreciate you making science attainable for the rest of us. Well, thanks very much for for saying that. It's a lot of fun. I have a, I have a good time doing all of this. Last question is, uh, what's uh, coming up on the horizons for Michael Behe? Well, right now I'm just uh, talking about my uh, two books that have come out within the past couple of years, but I have another book in mind, but it'll probably be at least five years down the road, talking about how we perceive the work of a mind. How how can we be sure that uh, that a mind is behind some deed or some work in our world? Uh, because it... it yeah, so it's going to be a little, you know, it's going to be science and philosophy and uh, maybe a bit of theology and, and so on. But What I does think that say uh, about me? I must be some sort of geek because you're talking about I'm getting goosebumps going, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jazz. It's like, you know, yeah. I get the same feeling when I watch the Seahawks win, which didn't really happen this last season. So I have to have something to get excited about. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't share that, though. <laughs> For me, Uh-oh. it's the Eagles. It's the Eagles okay. for me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, well, your Eagles yeah. aren't in the Super Bowl either, Michael, yeah. so no, we'll just commiserate yeah. together. I get excited <laughs> about science and your book, A Mousetrap for yeah. Darwin. Michael okay. J. Behe. Guys, thanks so much for being part of the My Michelle Live podcast today. If you have questions about the God story, or if you don't think I asked hard enough questions, if you think there's more out there and I'm just not seeing it because, well, I'm blinded by my faith, that's okay. Email me your thoughts and your questions. Let's talk the God story. And if you like this, we're still in our infancy of going 100% digital. So get the word out. Like us, share us, tell your friends, and share that God story with my Michelle Live. Thank you. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com. <laughs>